It is my pleasure today to introduce to you Alex Hayes. Now, I am reading from the biography that is in your program because I only met Alex last night as well and it's the first time I've had a chance to find anything about him as well. Alex is a researcher, educator and artist living in Canberra, the ACT. He's currently completing a Doctor of Philosophy at the University of Wollongong, Faculty of Informatics, School of Information Systems and Technology. He is co-founder of Streamfolio Proprietary Limited, formed in 2009, to meet the growing demand for rich media portfolio applications that interface neatly with wearable location-enabled point-of-view video camera technologies. Try saying that in one breath. Streamfolio is one of the many projects where Alexander is prototyped, has prototyped concepts in collaboration with others for commercial or non-commercial purpose. This interest is mobile, wearable, location-enabled technology forms, the backbone for current research inquiry. And he has online social media at Alexander Hayes. And his website is alexanderhayes.com. Alexander, or Alex, is talking to us today about e-assessment, where location informs validation and builds new models of educative arrangement. Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, in setting the scene this morning, I'm uh, mindful that for some people in this room, they have seen me in many guises. So what I'm hoping to do today is to pose a, a picture of currency of discussion, but also to connect some of the dots with uh, those people that don't know who I am, and also uh, most particularly examine the nature of uh, geolocation-based technologies. And in doing so, also, acknowledge that the presentation I'm bringing you today is actually live. There are people that are editing the presentation live through Google Docs, through this environment. It's a crowdsourced presentation, which may be unfamiliar to some people, and I'll give you a basic description of what it means. It means that by invitation, I sent this particular uh, premise or synopsis out to a range of network contacts, and then also across the social web for people to make con uh, contact and to add content to their own slide. And of the 15 people that I have uh, uh, composed, uh, I've noticed that some people are going in and re-aligning some of their thoughts between this morning and now. So my apologies if we get to a slide and it appears half edited, it's actually not me, it's somebody else live. Michael, if we can move on. Uh, as, as stated, I'm currently studying through the University of Wollongong. I'm halfway through a PhD. Um, I attended ASIS uh, 2011 last week and as part of the presentation uh, the keynote spoke very uh, silently about the nature of uh, the education faculties and sectors and also information sectors in general that everyone is in crisis, that technology is um, expanding uh, second per second on an exponential rate and that our jobs as educators is to ensure that the people who we are in contact with remain people and are not lost to systems simply for the sake of the system. Um, this morning I received an invitation to speak at the Surveillance and Everyday Life Conference, which is uh, appearing early in 2012. Uh, the paper submission is looking at the implications of the technologies I will speak of today in an education context. Uh, they're also um, Please don't um, immediately assume that my um, 
affiliation is with surveillance or surveillance technologies simply that I am interested in this area as it applies to the technologies which I'm also um, commercially involved with. Michael. Um, as stated earlier, I'm a director in streamfolio.com, which, uh, which is in present state uh, in a very interesting paradoxical moment. Uh, we championed uh, very early on uh, the idea that wearable technologies might serve as a useful, resourceful and meaningful rich media resource collection device for an educational context. We have 191 clients from the Australian Federal Police through to the smallest RTOs. We have individuals using them for hairdressing, bricklaying, mining and every other occupation that you can think of in workforce development. The technologies range in price from $12 through to $12 million if you wanted to. It depends on the systems that you've got connected to the devices. And I think just about, there's a number of faces in the room, a number of people I know uh, and respected individuals who have also championed and used and explored the nature of these technologies in their own organisation. I predict that we have still a number of years yet until we see an uptake of the technologies in their truest sense, in being seamless and semantic. Michael. Uh, this is the current picture I received today of the uh, police force in uh, California. Um, fast emergent, that police force is going to look the same here and in just about every jurisdiction in Australia. What they're wearing is known as a Tazar Axon camera. Those cameras are connected to a central wireless grid. Whatever they see is being recorded live from the field. The Tazar guns that the, the police officers wear at the moment have a camera inside them as well. They are also being transmitted back to a central database source. Tazar Axon are being closely examined by the Australian Police Force in their participation in that commercial enterprise as well, which means that the technologies themselves are absolutely fantastic. They work really well. High definition video, audio, wireless, broadcast. These are technologies which are available for us. Uh, do we recontextualise these? Are there implications in recontextualisation? And I'm hoping today to have my presentation finished in 20 minutes. I've got 56 slides to get through in the next 17 minutes. And I'm hoping that for 20 minutes we can actually have a discussion around perhaps some of the, the fears, tribulations, ideas and some of the amazing things that we could share that are already happening in the field. Michael. Um, I last week met with um, this man here, Professor Andrew Goldsmith, and some of his colleagues through the Centre for Transnational Crime Prevention. They're looking at a number of uh, uh, comparative studies that are looking uh, between different jurisdictions such as Geelong and Wollongong and looking at the parallels of change that are occurring in those communities. When I speak of education sector, I actually mean sector as in context. Education and training occurs in all industries. Um, some of the industries that we have been interfacing with and working with are private investigators, the police force, community policing, and they're just one, one element of the, the client group that we work with. We work with TAFE colleges, we work with small private RTOs, enterprise RTOs, we work with mining industry individuals, so our reach is broad ranging. This just happens to be another area where cyber crimes are, uh, are of great interest to where, what people are wearing. And now I want to kind of bring this back into the nature of what we're talking about of educative arrangement and how this might make meaning for you. These are the co-authors of this particular document that I've documented and could be moving as well. Uh, these are representative, uh, I believe, of a, a broad range of my network but also different organisations within 
uh, Taifa New South Wales within various structures and also international and national based um, uh, contacts in there. And the synopsis today, or what I have posed in the program, if you read that, is that mobile phone users will notice how many services, I'm not going to read it because I don't want to, I know that you can read my PowerPoints, but essentially um, I have, I've come from an M learning, M learning or mobile learning discipline out of some of the research that I was involved in that I was snavelled from a teaching position to try and look at. As basic as can we use SMS technology with our, with our learners. That over eight years has progressed absolutely infinitely amazingly. Um, I looked back on my own history and coined and looked at some of the key terms and I've, I'm very interested in my own dispersed, disaggregated and messy internet presence. And I found two posts, but one that was fairly silent back in 2007. This is of my own. And that is, it's not an egotistical drop, it's just something that I found that I, I, it stru struck me as that I had said. I sometimes find things I can't believe I've said. It still holds true for me and hopefully one day it will be easier for me to navigate through semantic spaces rather than all this damned, darned keystroke business. And I was coming from thinking around that one of the most engaging spaces for individuals, disadvantaged, not X, Y, whatever you want to call it, is wearable. And that 90% of people last year had mobile phones, 80% the year before, 70% the year before, and so on. I'm now asking people, if you have a phone and you look in the settings, did you realise that all the settings inside there have a location-enabled facility? And that many of the facilities of your phone are actually subscribed to different subscription services and push servicing from geolocation spaces in marketing your identity for purpose, commercial purpose. I'll give you an example. Driving down from a metropolitan region through a rural community into a remote location, I noticed that when I went 100 metres past my designated space of where I was going to go for accommodation, that I received a message from the Acor Hotels saying, would you like to book in tonight for a hotel? Now, how did I do that? Because I'm, I'm not a registered member of Acor, although I have a corporate card. I have a mobile device that has um, frequented hotel spaces as a delegate and, and business person. But I also understand that I've never subscribed to a service to inform me of that. It's just a question. It's something that has occurred to me. All right, Michael. I believe this technology is you technology, and that's what it's being toited or touted as. Do you care about location-based web, and do you get it? And this is coming from the future of technology and education. These notes and everything is on the web, and you can have it later to have a look at. I encourage you to look at each reference and see some of the discourse that's occurring off that. Uh, technology is put in the hands of the private sector. Information about you that was formerly only available to the police without a warrant is now being used without your permission. So I'm very interested in permissions and always getting back to my core area of interest is in identity, what it means to be a citizen or a workforce participant and what it really truly means within the education sector. Now what I've done is actually drilled into a number of anecdotes that people have used and these are fairly current and some of them are not. But this particular person is looking at a new media consortium. If you go to nmc.org, there's an amazing amount of information around different trends and similar. In the area of geolocation space, it seems to be fairly devoid of information. It's a participative ask that created a wiki and said, please contribute things around 
your thoughts of geolocation in an educational context. Sometimes I feel that my smartphone is running. Sorry, Michael, if you just go back one, please. There is there. They're looking at that, to me, is a summary of exactly some of, some of the anxiety I was feeling last year. Thinking through that, thinking, jeepers, it's, it's informing everything. I'm starting to get a bit anxious. How do I turn these things off? And as Stefan and I mentioned last night, perhaps our job is to examine the fact that by default it's very difficult to turn things off and that perhaps now we need to think about, we need to think about being citizens in this community and world, particularly as learners, of always being on. We don't have a choice now of turning things off. Michael. Uh, just in Wikilocation, it's a fairly obtuse sort of environment. Look at that, 3.5 million geocoded articles. That, that means articles that are attributed with EXIF data and geolocation data along with the transcript. So it's combining a three-dimensional space, time, location, as well as trajectory. An example, driving from Wollongong to Sydney, 110 zone, I'm doing 124. Look at the clock, okay, I'll go back down to 110. At that point in time, if I'd taken a picture out of the car and sent it, if I'd sent it to Flickr, Flickr and other services are re recording not only what they see and the location and, the tr and, uh, and, and so on, they're also recording the trajectory, but the trajectory is not made public. But imagine if all of the data that we have transcribed and put up into these locations included trajectory, we'd be fined repeatedly because we'd be exceeding the speed limit, we'd be doing things we shouldn't be doing, texting when we shouldn't, and similar. So this is just some inferences I'm talking about. Now I want to talk about the positives. Internet service providers, I encourage you to look at this Telstra white paper. It's quite seminal. I know Michael's been uh, told that this exists, so it's a good thing to have a look at. <coughs> look at the first part. I just took out the geolocation side of it. One of the first paragraphs in the whole paper is, for students today, learning is mobile. It it's outside the confines of the architecture. It's outside the confines of what we perceive as curriculum. It offers the student a constantly connected environment. What does that mean? How are we embracing that? How do we bring that into play? Particularly when we talk about e-portfolios, when we talk about tertiary preparation pathways, when we talk about encompassing student-based, um, uh, student-centred learning. Michael. Here's some examples. This is the person that I am affiliated with as a supervisor. Very ancient technology, it's called a track stick. You pop it under the car, it looks like a, half the size of a phone. In actual fact, it's probably only the size of this thing of the phone. It's a little magnet just popped under the car. You wouldn't know it was there. Student participants voluntarily uh, placed this particular device under the car and analytically over a period of time she examined through a, a series of um, case studies the levels of participation that those students felt it was about a, f a feeling of participation of being tracked. After a period of time, there were three students with a cohort of 25 that outright said, I need this device removed from my car. As participants within the organisation. The same participants are participating within location-based social media facilities out in the community. So the paradox is that when things are brought to the attention of the individual who is in this space, um, it brings up and, and raises a whole range of implications and feelings. Michael. Simon Brown, who was a stonemasonry teacher from Queensland, 
is looking at the use of QR codes and applications like Foursquare as part of his time-based report sheet for where he is and how he reports into his organisation. He's asking the organisation, you're asking me to log into a system which is difficult to record my timesheets, to go through the HR system to similar, to get my paycheck. Why can't I just log in if I'm out on the field with my work, workplace apprentice? My geolocation takes some uh, auditory or visual evidence of the fact that I'm with the participant and that you automate the system of my payment for those particular hours that I'm engaged on the contract. So he's already thinking about the systems ahead of time as an employee. This is a stonemasonry teacher, Michael. He's using Foursquare and he's using a number of other um, QR code um, identifiers to enhance the learning capability of learners within his, in, his in, uh, workshop or area. So they arrive at the workshop and they can participate in a learning experience using that technology. Megan Yama, who's a, uh, a well-known M-learning enthusiast and techno-socio-technical um, researcher also looks at, in an in a educative sense, how could music technologies and um, crowdsourced ensembles occur and how could we use those and map those to, a, to competencies or capabilities as John's been talking about earlier. How can, how can we use some of this discord and social technologies and geolocation to bring people together so we can map them and accredit them. Megan's street orchestra um, instrument's a good um, example of how to have a look at that. So if you look up street orchestra in Google and have a look, it's, there's a couple of apps in there you can add to your phone and your iPad. Val Evans, who some people know as well. I often um, talk with Val about some of the implications of technologies and Val mulls them through in the head and comes out with yes, no's and in-betweens. And then, as we've noticed in the last four or five years, has started to explore the use of point-of-view technologies, video portfolios for evidence, and how that might show across the disaggregated learning space. To make this more accessible, this uh, Val is talking about her excitement. And I always see excitement as being the first point of call, the second part is the application, the third part is how do we make, the, is there any form of any implication we need to examine here and how do we map uh, business development so that we can eliminate some of the risks for our learners. And she was talking about going on holiday and some of the things that going on holiday might mean. Uh, like any technology, Robin, who we know, Robin Jay, uh, is looking at some of the positive potential of this technology. She's not necessarily interested. There's a lot of angst around the fact of location technologies creeping into what we do. Facebook, uh, what are you doing? A little tiny little tag that looks like that in the corner. Where are you? Facebook already knows where we are by our ISP range and similar, but we are voluntarily starting to be inculcated into, into giving away our location for a specific reason. And that push marketing is something we need to examine as educators. Robin's talking about the positive sides of things and that's, that's her take and I like that take. She's got quite a profound image talking about the fact that this is one photo in Flickr, she can dialogue and, and converse, she can identify where the photo is to, uh, taken, she can see similar photos that are by geolocation assimilated and she can start to see all the data that's attached to where the photo was taken, the type of camera exposure and similar. So when you take a photo it gives away sometimes up to 78 subsets of information to that provider. They're getting all your information. And, and you're not getting anything back except connection. 
Uh, I think this is Lee's present mind state at the moment. Some people know Lee as being an antagonist, protagonist, activist, um, uh, amazing thinker, similar. Lee says that he feels like he's being overrun by people who are enthusiastically technocratic, technocratic in their way or through the community without necessarily critiquing or reflecting enough. And he gives an example. 287 files documenting the reality of international mass surveillance in industry. And that's just off the top of his mind. I think it's also indicative that, again, this nature of surveillance or similar is becoming to, it's a consideration we really need to take as educators in what we're doing. We need to consider about what we're mapping, what we're encouraging our learners to do, and also how we can connect with them. Another huge amount of text you're not going to be able to read here in the amount of time we have here. But essentially, it's about uh, the paradox that we find ourselves in and how we can look at some of the ideological imperatives as we inform this space further. Michael? Sure, just for the people that don't know who Lee is, there's Lee. Uh, one of the pictures he submitted was there, about 4am, hooligans riding to Kingston on a Saturday night. So really, I think the statement he's making there is that people are aware they're under surveillance and they're still acting out of discordance. So what we need to also think about is that our learners are aware of the technology and they are going to use the technology in ways that are going to challenge us as educators as to how we think. So we have to be uh, in the space of thinking critically around what this means. Leo, who we well know from brightcookie.com, uh, is also in here and he asks, are we just playing with tools here? Are these just toys or is this an inherent technology that's going to, we need to develop a series of skills and subsets of skills to understand what this online identity now means and what geolocation might be part of that identity. I cannot see them being taught practically a lot that means it's not, we're not in a, actually in a teaching space to teach how to use the, the technology. The technology is already imbued in the, in the community. We just have to understand how to filter that. And apart from some rogues, we'll try to teach these skills to people. Key words that he thinks are important for the nature of the conversation that we should think about. It's interesting that privacy is so large in, in that environment as well. Some of those terms are not familiar, but some these are really you know, handshaking between services, so they connect. You log on to one service and it automatically allows you, a, sorry, a, a, a trans a pathway into another application, happening all the time. Say something in Facebook, it's also saying it to six or seven other connected services. So network technology. Megan Lindsay. Uh, Megan is a, a vet provider in, the, in Queensland. She's talking about potential. She can appreciate the value. She thought that M-Learning location was that if we, if the whole thing about having a mobile technology was that learning became a synonym, uh, an, uh, 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 an unrestricted space. And that was the whole uh, point of her, if we flick through to the next slide there, Michael. She's talking about, it doesn't, do you really need to know where I am? The question is, I suppose, philosophical in a way too, because it's comparing, does it matter where I am, really, as a learner? Does it just matter that I've learned and I can, I can, I can provide evidence of that, Michael? Margot O'Connell, uh, who has um, been instrumental in some of the work at CIT and has now moved to Western Australia. When I think of geolocation and education sense, I it's like, I think, finally learning's back in its place. She got in her car, she blogged all the way across the, the Nullarbor till she arrived in Perth. She now blogs about her garden 
but all of us are connected to her story. We know where, what, how, just by the way that she's thinking around connected learning spaces and that we don't need to be restricted even by the organisation. Let's use the providers to their advantage. Geolocations like any other mobile technology. It's interesting that she's acknowledging that her children play a big part in what um, some of those technologies um, mean for her as a family. And you'll notice there there's an underlying thread here that mobile learning or mobile technologies or mobile applications, mobile web, mobile semantic and similar are concurrent amongst the different people. Even though I haven't asked them, I didn't prompt them of that mobile, I just talked about location in the context of education. So she's taking photos with smartphone weather apps. She doesn't take a photo and send it. She's taking it with a smartphone inbuilt filter, which also sends all that data to a gr the grandmother of the three-year-old. So the grandmother is reading not only what is in the photo, but what the temperature was, at what location, at what time, and similar. Interesting app. There it is. So that's what, that's what grandma would find on her phone. Grandma would read that on the phone and she would say she wouldn't need to ask her daughter what temperature is it there or is it a sunny day she can see that um, where are you located what's the wind speed it's all there <laughs> it's uh, it's um, sort of paradoxical it cuts the conversation in half I'd imagine I have to admit though and some of the, these are some of the reflections that she's having I do feel in using geolocation technologies that I'm on location all the time. That's an interesting thing. It, it seems to me the film industry used that, talk, that, that um, rhetoric of on location. But now we're on location as educators all the time. <laughs> we're always connected. And again, it raises big questions about digital identity and how much we are, and our learners, are validating and defining the parameters of our digital selves. How do we, as organisations and educators, embrace that? Not enough effort in the digital literacy space, and uh, that's Marg's catch cry. We need digital literacy as one of the core areas that um, needs to be identified predominantly within what we deliver. Jeff, uh, a fellow director, his example is the technology is a Roadhawk GPS camera. The context is driver training. Just imagine getting in a car that's got a camera that's just where your mirror is. <coughs> it points out and it points in like a taxi driver camera. But it also gives the geolocation, and then if you flick on to the next slide, Michael, it allows you as, as the student to be able to watch this whole movie as, as a, an individual in the driver training. So imagine going for your L's. When you go for your L's, at the end of your L's, you log in to the RTO. The RTO has a subscription service, and the RTO subscription service sends you what you did, what you said, what you saw, where you were, what happened, evidence, proof. Driver trainers in the UK are starting to use this avidly. It's creeping into the Australian driver training industry and it's going to become a standardised uh, methodology and action. Does it invade the privacy of the individual? Does it compromise the training instructor? You know, there's a plethora of questions that come out from that. And this is affecting industry immediately. What other applications could you see particularly for this technology? Would you put it in your own car? That's it. So there's a whole range of different things that we can immediately bring to bear within an industry context on a simple $199 camera. Yeah, you're seeing it concurrently. So, that, so there's three frames of video watch at once. They're all playing exactly at the same time for the viewer at, on the final video. What it's showing is the geolocation as you travel. You know, you look at Google Maps as you travel along. You can see a little blue thing moving along. Oh, you're seeing everything. Yeah, you're seeing everything. 
what's out the front of the car and what's inside the car. Whether the driving and training instructor touched the, the um, gear stick or your leg, things like that. Okay. Jeff, next one. That's correct. So Jeff also talks about track stick technology and he's giving a live example here. So in, in relative confidence, so Michael, if you want to go forward there. Uh, he sits at a console, that's his job now, sits at a console monitoring, next slide, where someone is, at what time, in what vehicle, what speed they're doing, and how much fuel is being used on the vehicle, and hundreds of these vehicles through mine sites. So we go back one step. You can imagine two screens, one with the data flow, and one with the surveillance flow. That's the nature of the work, is to look at and look at and analyse uh, context of um, best practice within the mining industry using GPS technology. That's another example. Thanks. Alex Miller from North Coast TAFE. She's excited about the opportunities again and signals to me that she's thinking around, she's already in the thinking space around geolocation technology and what it might mean. She's using these particular services on her phone. It's interesting. They're all nav related, meaning that they're all being tracked in a geolocation um, environment. I use location-enabled technology on my iPhone more now more than I actually talk to people. I use it to help me find my friends, my phone, my toddler keeps hiding it, my way around, facilities and services nearby, banks, bars, hospitals, and even to the nearest toilet. Uh, in education, there are so many possible uses for the combination of these two parameters within an educational context. Another signal. These people are champions within the field. They're not self-elected champions. They've been in the space of thinking around this. They're avidly thinking now how to contextualise this technology now and what it might mean in the next couple of years, particularly. Regan Harding, you might be um, familiar with Regan from uh, North Coast also. She's looking at how Facebook has played a huge part in what she's doing and how it has uh, brought together people within the youth orientation area. Next slide, Michael, there. Uh, EES, general things that she's been doing, initiatives, looking at efficient waste systems. I think geotagging could present a great opportunity for this kind of training self-elected emission, she's already in the thinking space around how this could be used. Not a, I, I just said the context, the synopsis is this. Does it resonate to you? If you wish to submit something, you can. If you don't, it's okay. They're in the space. For example, we could ask students to go out into the field, collect images of flora, fauna, potential project sites, record the GPS coordinates, that's doing it automatically, analyse the data while they're back in the classroom. When she says classroom, she's meaning class setting. There's just a little <laughs> um, um, metaphorical reference of what she's been doing online. Interacting, locating, tagging, and by omission, where are you and why are you doing things. This man here, I use location, geolocation devices for these, these examples. Navigation, tracking time and mapping your walks. Walks, you need to share some of those with me, Michael, apart from your flicker feed. And I'm very careful to run this off, on and off, and I found this one very interesting, this last line. So it's not my default tracking, it's not by default tracking my exact location 24-7. I can guarantee you, Michael, that if you go into the settings on your phone, and if you've got the camera turned on, the camera services are actually reporting out geolocation. So you'd have to turn the camera off. Turn the difference off. Is in this example, I can tell and I can see the data in that example, I can't. That's it. So once we become aware of the data, once we become aware of our tracking and pattern, it's made explicit to us as learners and educators and organisations. Is there an educational arrangement potential there? Does it change the educative arrangement that we currently have? 
if we can exactly pattern track exactly where a student is and know where they went and what they did, does it compromise the identity of the individual? Is there potential in that? I use geolocation devices to locate events during Adelaide Fringe, social check into locations on Foursquare, and as the discussion went last night, I wish I could have recorded that and just podcast that two-hour discussion you had with Stephen Ridgeway. Uh, very, very salient from two people that suddenly two hours of conversation is around one geolocation app and the way that you admit and, and do things. I think it, it, it was a very interesting conversation. I'd purposely sat out of the conversation to listen to you two around Foursquare and what it meant. Next um, slide, please. We've seen them creep up everywhere. We know what they are. They're around. They're being used. We're using them right now as services. Jo Murray. She's using an application called SCVNGR. If you look that up in Google and press go. Very interesting social dynamic spaces opening up that, are, that in order to participate in that event-driven based uh, space, you need to expose your identity, geolocation, and similar. And by the, the nature of um, um, proximity and similar, you can be drawn into events that are ad hoc and some that are planned and some that are educationally oriented. She's looking at the educative arrangement and orientation by geolocation for individuals as they come in proximity to each other. Different students, different environments coming on block release across environments, and when they meet at a certain location, something unfolds for them and a learning activity or a learning sequence occurs all through their mobile technology. This is what it looks like. <coughs> it's a game about doing challenges at places. So if you're navigating through somewhere, you're, you come to a certain space, suddenly you'll get a message or similar, or you'll be asked, prompted to contribute as part of that event. And as part of the eventing, it's starting to move into a space of authentication and accreditation. Definitely exploiting people's location and their mobile phone's GPS. It's up to them whether they want to engage and play in the game. I don't think it locates players who might be nearby, but it may. And that's what she divulged in my chat with her. It is doing it. Next slide. It's still in the testing learning pilot phase. Again, she's declaring that she's already in the space trialling this, whether by omission or not, that she's applying this. It's, it's live. Who knows what other privacy issues will arise? And then we can only suck it and see, is that what we're currently doing, most of us? Malcolm Jolly, now uh, he presented at Converge last week. Um, Malcolm talks about uh, his presentation is called I'm Here, doing this. He's using, again, Foursquare and this coding to orient people through learning uh, spaces and places uh, to better connect with the learner cohort around um, OHS particularly. The orientation onto a campus begins at the front gate. It didn't begin when the, the students sat down three hours later for the induction. They simply took a photo, started navigating, and it didn't just navigate them into a screen to read, it started to talk to them. It started to navigate around videos, it started to prompt them with podcasts to listen to as they sat down with their mates, similar. And this harks back to Marcus Ragus and similar um, M learning uh, principles going way back five or six years now. Malcolm's talking about the fact that within a, the context as an educator, as part of the, the evidence that he's gathering, he's also looking by omission some of the data that's been um, sent back into his um, uh, training profile and the repository that's now needed for rich media. 
not only is he transmitting content and, and controlling how this content arrives to the learner, they're also submitting data back into the system. And from their mobile devices, they need a repository that's centralised somewhere they can use it, including geodata and EXIF data. At the moment, they're pumping all this IP out into all the social media spaces. And IP spaces are using that content and using that data, and we could be doing, we could be offering a, a Foursquare ourselves. Can we build a Foursquare for our own education organisations? I think we can. I think we're going there quickly. Malcolm's talking about here are some of the evidence of the things that the students are divulging, some of the work that they're immersed in from the site at the time and all of the data that's related to that. Another student whose relationship with the same space on the other side of the wall is also about, he's mapping different things that are, he's reporting on other students and they're playing good cop, bad cop against each other, saying this job wasn't done quite correctly and, and what that might mean in the trades-based environment. Another example is one of Simon's uh, cohorts are roof, car roof carpenters and they lay the battens down to put the tiles on and instead of the OHS officer simply standing on the ground and looking up and saying, oh yeah, that looks straight, yeah, that's, that's good, or interrogating the individual, actually getting up the ladder wearing visual cameras and traipsing around the roof and recording exactly what was done there and then because they could do it hands-free. Again, the wearable technology is GPS tracked. So they know by the, the, the HIA representatives know that that person was there at that time and that date, exactly at that time. This was one of the most interesting, with no image or anything. He just, Ian just sent me what his current state is. Now, he's a litmus sometimes for some of the things that I think around. Ian says he's currently delivering Certificate 3 in surface prep, sandblasting, Harbour Bridge, all sorts of different industry contexts. They're now delivering both distance and face-to-face. -face. What they're faced with as a challenge is the fact that their market is expanding into PNG, Timor, Southeast Asia, Singapore and similar. How do assessors and trainers and similar in those environments, when there's a squeeze on budget, how can, they, how can people be employed in that location to provide validated evidence that they have attended an assessment or have attended a workplace visit with the learners in place who are accessing other data He's thinking around where geolocation might, what it might mean. Uh, one of the benefits in the terms of a trade is to get various new equipment, relate these observations to other students, and problems that are occurring from that is they can't meet the financial costs and so on. And then the next slide. The use of geolocation technology would be useful in regards to validating an on-site practical assessment. Now that could be a premise, it could be a projection that he's already working on, it could be something that he's examining that other people are already doing. And authenticating that an assessment's taking place on a specific date, time and location anywhere in the world. So the difference there is anywhere in the world. With the technology we can view the assessments remotely if required. And that would go some way to alleviating the issues that, that we've already been highlighted. That's it. Thank you very much. I open the floor for discussion. Any questions? As we look at... Um, these different layers of authentication mm. we can add yeah. uh, to authenticate the person is the person who they say they are doing so the yeah. test. Um, my concern is that we go overboard with that mm -hmm. because before um, we had these tools, uh, someone doing remote training 
uh, a pen signature on an assignment that was posted in was considered good enough and there was some trust That's around right. that. That's right. But now we have these tools we're saying, well, how do we know that person was signing that particular mm -hmm. PDF mm -hmm. document? We need a third party viewing the person signing the technology. We need photos from the webcam capturing the person every 10 seconds. I think there's huge privacy issues there. Mm. And I mm -hmm. think it's great technology. And I think for some industries and some settings, let's use it. Mm -hmm. But I think my question is, are we going too far with some of this authentication mm -hmm. stuff? Now we can do it. We think, oh, let's do the bells and whistles authentication. Whereas I can actually um, probably set up a bank account easier than doing some of these e-learning uh, authentication. Mm, absolutely. I have the same question. Um, some would see me as a, a techno-evangelist, but I've adopted more of a position of late where I've stated that I need to have a position on where trust, identity and validation and the assessment come together. I think that perhaps some of the, te the technologies that we are looking at avidly as having potential also have to have some circumspect um, applied to them. And I take your point too, that where it was in the past uh, valid enough to sign off and we were trusted as professional educators and, and, and um, participants as part of a system, that professionalisation is becoming uh, technically oriented in such a way that's also eroding our position. So what we need to do is think about some of key implications that the technology has and map out. That's correct, that's correct. And again, it also, perhaps it can in various instances betray the identity of an individual where they didn't want to be um, identified. Example of an industry standard example is uh, we're well aware if we buy a house, we ask for a certificate of validation from uh, a confined space um, um, inspector that the house is free of termites and similar. Now there is a, a large push on the industry for those particular confined space trained individuals to be monitored wearing ca infrared cameras while they're in the space and that not only does this, this certification happen as a piece of paper, it also happens as a digital media file that's emitted with that to the body, to the actual authority body, not to the client but to the authority body. And the original examples I gave of community policing and workforce and similar are some of the, um, some of the, the first areas that we are looking at the technologies where the technologies come in and we're reappropriating those without any circumspect in an educational space. So while I evangelised a little bit about POV five years ago, I'm in some ways not backtracking but trying to find a position in between that. I take your point. Did you have a question? Well, not a question, it's an observation. Sure. Uh, 22 years ago I had to prove every landfall and exit I'd made in Australia since 1973. Mm -hmm. Um, I said this was an impossibility because I'd lost one of my passports. The lady at the counter said, just wait a minute. She printed out four A4 pages of every landfall and exit I'd made in Australia 22 years ago. Remember this was when we were looking at the Australian ID card? Mm -hmm. and everyone was up in arms about that. Mm -hmm. Six months later, I got caught, except for speeding in New South Wales. I gave them my PNG licence because I was still in PNG. I paid the fine. And then a year later, when I came into New South Wales, at Singleton, I got picked up at the RTA that I was three demerit points down when I transferred my licence into New South Wales. Mm -hmm. Privacy, I think, is something that we... It's gone many, mm -hmm. many years mm -hmm. ago. Mm -hmm. And with the technology we have now, it's... You know, I think you just go with the flow. 
And that's the point that I made earlier. Do we just accept, do we just accept that we're always on now? And, and to, what, to what extent does that really mean uh, and what does that affect the educational arrangement that we have? If uh, learners, as, as um, Melanie was stating earlier, uh, if you have um, any anxiety around having your photo taken and transmitted as part of this particular event, um, please let us know. Uh, we all know that we walk down the street outside here and that we've already been photographed how many times? We already know that. And yet, what we have as educators is a, is a moral space and an identity space that we can explore and it's something that we need to acknowledge not to take carte blanche but sometimes to be circumspect about what it might mean. Another example of where that might mean is um, from Roger Clark's uh, work uh, with the Australian Privacy Foundation. I met Roger Clark yesterday. I had a long chat with Roger about data valence and his notions around data valence. Uh, that the triquetra or the coming together of the three areas are really where edu educational organisations need to look at more, more with interrogation. That's around do we move to a biometric model for LMS logons? That's another area that's being painted and looked at. Uh, when you go into an RSL club, you actually sign a piece of paper that states your name, it's duplified, it takes a photo of you from the camera, you submit your driver's licence, there's three forms of ID before you've even been admitted to have a, a beer at the bar. The same systems by CrimTrack are being examined and, and in a political context be, are being thought of as potential environments to thwart some of the crimes that are occurring on campus. So some of the areas that we need to think about are these technologies are, are rampantly working in the background. We just need to be aware of them. And then how do we contextualise that and think of these, in a, as Robin Jay would say, in a positive, positivist, interpretivist way that makes meaning for educative arrangement. I'm getting the wind-up signal, so do we have a last question quickly? Thanks, Therese. I actually listened to this with great interest. I've got a background in nursing and we have students who go out on clinical visits and mm. some of the difficulties that we have is because they are so scarce, we may well have them stretched all across Sydney mm. and it's nothing for an educator to turn up to go and do something with a student to find that they're on the afternoon shift rather than the morning shift, you know, that type of thing. Mm. I could see how this might be useful for us to actually locate students and you say that's available, but where do we get it? It's available commercially and it's available socially. Do it. What I, the question that I have posed, and I think it's being answered gradually. Are we ready yet, as organisations and educative um, um, affiliations, are we ready to start to provide our own? And what, what your, you your, your, your question is saying: Where can I find this technology to use this technology? What I'm saying is: Are we ready yet to actually do that, knowing that there are implications around identity, around tracking, and similar? I'm taking a, a, a neutral stance. Uh, I'd like to find and, and engage in the space of dialogue, critical dialogue, around whether we really truly want to actually start to use this technology to track and monitor. I'm not saying yes or no. What I'm saying is that I can see great potential too. I can see that people are using commercial services to do our industry standard need. This Foursquare is serving as the space for this. There's many of these different environments serving as our space. <coughs> But as organisations with, with uh, large infrastructures and similar, are we ready to do the same? Can we offer that service to our student? If you wish to log your identity and where you are, that might save us an awful lot of time and money and you're going to get in the benefit from that too. But do they have to have particular phones to do it? Like do the old dinosaur phones cover this? Well, I think that 
from my Nokia 6210 forward, you'll find that the technology already existed. It just wasn't, as somebody said, identified to us that we could use it. It's already there, very much so. Particularly okay. on these guys here. Thank you very much, Alex. Thank it, you, Therese. Thank you, you everyone. Thank you.